I know you guys may act all tough and create this persona that you don't need to take care of your skin, but anyone who has been in the wilderness for an extended amount of time knows that's not true. You have to take care of your body. That's why you should check out Trichome. Trichome is a skincare company that sells what is quite frankly the best lip balm on the planet. Made with all natural ingredients, it's built to protect your lips in the harshest conditions. On top of that, they've got body oil and beard oil options as well. And guys, be sure to check out their shaded lip balms for the lady in your life. Check out their website at trichomeco.com to buy and use code LETHAL10 at checkout for 10% off your order. Again, that's T-R-I-C-O-M-B-E-C-O.com. So, I mean, you're, you're a big elk hunter. Uh, do you, you, you've mentioned elk, blacktail and bear, but you said bear is kind of a byproduct if you're hunting other things. Is there, is there anything else that you, you like to, do you like to hunt in Oregon? That's like a, a favorite animal of yours. Uh, you know, I mainly focus on elk and everything else where I can squeeze it in and I love all types of hunting, but when you have a family and run a business and, uh, a life like everybody does, Mm -hmm. you somewhat have to pick your battles. I mean, um, I went antelope hunting a couple years back and shot one of those. And that was, that was fun. Um, anytime you can get me out in the woods chasing something with a bow and arrow, I'm happy. So, yeah. Oh yeah. uh, I focus on elk cause they fill the freezer and I just, it's a pursuit that's pretty, close and at home for me that i can do and really enjoy so right yeah. what a because i am completely ignorant how much like if you if you kill a decent bull like how much like poundage of meat do you normally pull off of that so there's different levels so if you're talking just quarters and the meat that you pack out like if you're backcountry mm-hmm. hunting and you just mm-hmm. quarter it out and pack it out you know, a lot of guys will tell you different things, but really you're going to get about two to 300 pounds typically. Uh, the biggest bull I ever killed was just the meat that I pulled off and the quarters was 442 pounds, but that's not the norm. Typically you're looking a couple hundred pound range. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you, do you normally hunt? Because I know Oregon has both, right? They've got Rosie's and, and Rocky Mountain. They do. Yes. Do you have a preference? Um, mainly I've focused on Rockies lately just because I like hunting wilderness areas and the only wilderness areas of size are more on the east side of the state. And, uh, I just really enjoy that type of hunting. I grew up hunting Roosevelt's, mm-hmm. uh, shot a handful of those as well. Um, my goal longer term is to just focus on Roosevelt's, uh, probably in, yeah, in three or four years, I'm going to switch over to doing that and then use the other states for my Rocky hunting. But yeah, as of right now, I'm going to lean towards the Rocky Mountain. Yeah, that's that's kind of how, that's the same thing you do, right, Garrett? You kind of hunt the eastern side of the state for Rockies? Yeah, mostly. That's just because that's where my hunting partner hunts and lives, so he knows that country better. That's fair. Uh, Ro- aren't Roosevelt elks, like, their body mass is a little bit bigger than Rocky Mountain Elks. 
Yeah, the body mass typically, uh, I've heard stats around 100 pounds more, but I don't know. I think that's like anything. It's debatable. Sure. The, definitely looking at them, their bodies look a lot bigger. I've shot a spike Roosevelt that would rivaled some six-point Rockies <laughs> just Jeez. in body size. <laughs> I think a lot of it has to do with just they can eat year-round and they don't have these massive hills to be climbing all the time. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. they're a little closer to cattle on the coast. Um, not that they don't work hard or in good shape, but um, yeah, lots of vegetation now on the on oh, the yeah. coast coastal side. I'm sure. Don't go hungry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we are hanging out tonight with Jeremy Johnson uh, with Bow Hunting Success. Jeremy is an author for a book that uh, we'll we'll discuss tonight, and uh, uh, we've I think we've talked about it. We've mentioned it in a couple episodes, uh, mm-hmm. but it's it's certainly not going to go away anytime soon because it's a favorite book of ours uh called can't lose bow hunting uh it's easy to find a giant picture of a of a bull elk on the on the front of it on a as a euro mount so uh check that out um jeremy tell us uh tell us a little bit about jeremy johnson the man how did uh how did uh, you get into riding and bow hunting and all that fun stuff well, uh, hunting is something that's probably the way I see it is I've got uh, God, family, work, and hunting in that order. And so <laughs> it's something that's been a part of my life and so it's a serious passion of mine as long as I can remember. I have pictures of me as a baby in a hunting camp. So um, I was always fanatical about hunting. So it's something that I don't know. I guess it's just that's what you get when you have a family that's into that stuff. And I'm sure, you know, most everybody listening can relate to that. Mm -hmm. Um, So as far as the bow hunting gets, comes in right after I got married in my early twenties or 20 for to be exact, um, I was getting really sick and tired of the amount of people during rifle seasons, how short it was Mm -hmm. uh, because I did like hunting so much that it was like, you know, you had a week to get out there and get it done, and it's more like combat hunting. You know, it's <laughs> ridiculous. You know, there wasn't anything hunting animal about it because you're hunting animals that are scared running from one herd of people to the next. Yeah. And it's just, it lost its luster for me. And I know that there's tags you can get where that's not the case, and that's great, but I want to hunt every year and as much as I can. So that's sure. when I picked up a bow. It's just a way to hunt more, really. And uh, right after I started, I was hooked. I just absolutely loved it, getting, you know, at least a month to hunt elk and not having people to compete with, and it was great. So I hit the ground running on that, and that's, you know, I just kind of basically took the same thing I was doing and applied it to bow hunting, and I'm the type of person that I don't really do anything halfway um, some people might call it a character defect, but I just, <laughs> if I'm doing, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing right is the way I look at it and hey, just kind of dug into it. it that way. So that's, that took me down a path on, you know, I'll stick to the bow hunting things. I won't get in too much into off base there, but as it relates to hunting, you know, that kind of just led me down a path. The same thing that I've done with my career or anything else, I, I can't fight all the battles, but the ones I fight, I try to do really well. And that 
that attitude kind of got me into learning more about the technical side of bow hunting and why it works and why it doesn't, you know, just as a way to improve my chances of success. Sure. So, you know, through a lot of failures, honestly, is what got me into more doing what we're talking about with writing and researching the lethality of arrows and what works and what doesn't. And, you know, it wasn't a fun story. I, the way that I learned and got into bow hunting, I could, I could shoot with the best of them. I mean, I found that just being accurate didn't cut it for me. Um, cause animals move and you hit bones and elk are big and I tell you what, they can take a hit. So that got me into studying more of the lethality of arrows and what works and what doesn't. And, uh, I was literally to the point I was going to burn my bow if I didn't figure out what worked. <laughs> 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 I think I think that's a very relatable thing, though. Like, th- th- and that's that's the intro yeah. to your book. Yeah, is you know giving a little bit of background on that and being at that point of going, like, what am I doing? And if I'm mm-hmm. gonna keep doing this, something needs to change. Right, right, yeah. And this this story is not unique, and it was kind of. I won't say it was refreshing, but it was when I, after the book came out and I started getting people writing back and telling me stories, it's like, no, I'm not the only one. This is, you know, this is a very common story out there. So I'm glad to be able to help folks out with a lot of tips that will, that I can guarantee will make them more successful in their hunting. And hopefully I can catch enough people to where they don't have to deal with the frustration that I did and uh you know set them that much further ahead in the learning curve so that's kind of what it's all about for me is just helping folks out because i mean you know we all think about hunting all year long i mean it's Mm -hmm. you put so much into it Uh, it's in their blood yeah so i know i when i look back at uh young bow hunter matt i get a little frustrated with how kind of nonchalant i looked at the whole thing and you know i grew up rifle hunting i didn't really start hunting with the bow until i was a little bit older but i i don't want to say i was dis well i'm i borderline am like disappointed with how how i handled myself as a younger bow hunter and i was very lucky that nothing went like awry in a in a really bad way Uh, but but i know from starting to get into the more technical side that uh, and just trying to understand understand my equipment and understand what works and what doesn't and why uh and and not just being so flippant about everything that uh, uh i definitely could have approached bow hunting as a as a younger man in a in a much better light and uh the the few conversations i've had with other people it's it's kind of been a a somewhat similar story, I guess, depending on how self-critical the person, <laughs> the person is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. but I mean, it, that's definitely pretty common. That's I'm, I'm kind of the oddball out of this. Cause like I started bow hunting in my, well, right around 20. Yeah. And, uh, I guess I have a engineering background. Like I, I tinker, I work on stuff. I, I like understanding how stuff works. And I had this brand new bow and these brand new arrows and 
some, I think I had some muzzy broadheads just because I guess right off the bat, I didn't like extra moving parts, but <laughs> yep. like I shot these things and they just were flying all kinds of sideways and goofy. I'm like, okay, something is not right here. Right. And next thing I knew I was knee deep in the Ashby studies. <laughs> like, so that's, I ended up killing my first or having my first archery harvest with not like textbook Ashby, but for a brand new bow hunter, it was a over a 500 grain arrow. It was a two blade single bevel. Like everyone at my local archery shop was looking at me like I was crazy. And, <laughs> and it just kind of, you know, just cascaded from there. But mm-hmm. so did you have like a, a singular experience or was it kind of like a multiple experience thing that made you start shooting what you now refer to as plan B arrows? Yeah, I, I really wouldn't feel right even preaching it if it was only a singular experience. It's really uh, multiple right. experiences, um, you know, in a lot of different ways, just poor arrow penetration, you know, broadheads dulling before they even get in the cavity and deflecting off of ribs and just different stuff like that. And uh, most of it is on elk, uh, but I did, you know, experience some stuff with other animals since then that kind of led me to believe that there's something to this plan B arrow. And basically where it comes from is I just want to make sure that uh, if my plan A, which is shot placement, uh, which is always first, you always want to make the best shot you can. If that doesn't work, what can I do as a plan B? And, you know, I know it's not really creative or anything. Uh, no, a great I, name. No, but it, it, it is very it is. intuitive. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. It just it, it makes sense. Yeah, it's so it's like it's exactly what it says. Is plan A is accuracy. Plan B is your arrow. And when accuracy goes out the fence, because you can be the best shot in the world, it doesn't matter. Animals move. Yep. And uh, when you can look through that hide and put it right between two ribs or whatever, you're better than I am. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> it's just, it's one of those things you got to have a plan B because yeah. um, accuracy alone never got it for me. And, you know, I could put all my arrows in an apple at 60 yards and that was 20 years ago. So I'm sorry, accuracy doesn't get it. Yeah. Uh, you got to have a plan B. Yep. Well, even, even then, we talked about this last week with, uh, with Rob Nielsen, like sometimes you'll, you'll make a perfect shot and the animal won't move and then if your setup isn't 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 right isn't correct like you still won't get crap for penetration and there's nothing you can do i mean like if you just center punch a a rib on a big elk on a big bull like i mean you i mean if you if you aren't set up correctly you may not get any penetration and it may have been a perfect shot uh i mean would have been a double long if it hadn't hit a rib but i mean no one, uh, at least that I'm aware of, has X-ray vision. So, uh, you know, it's uh, even you know, even if you are accurate as hell, you gotta have a, gotta have something to to help you out in the event that things don't go perfectly. For sure. Well, and that's exactly like the testing that we did in those pigs. Yep. The the one guy in the group that wasn't shooting uh, our kind of setups, arguably, probably the best shot out of the group. I mean, the guy's just a sharpshooter. Yeah, you're saying he's a sniper. And 
I mean, he put a perfect heart shot on this, like, 280, 290-pound pig and got, like, four or maybe five inches of penetration. Like, he broke through the first set of ribs. Yeah. Like, that's, I mean, those pigs had, you know, just to get inside of the rib, you're looking at three inches. Yep. Yeah, they had thick hides on them, right? And like, well, super just, thick. You know, the skin and then the layer of fat and then you yeah. have muscle and then the bone and like so it's like you can make that perfect shot but depending on what you're chasing it doesn't mean that it's gonna be a perfect result yeah absolutely yeah there's a lot you cannot control after that arrow leaves the bow yeah you're telling me so there's there's a section in your book called I believe it's called the trajectory dilemma, and uh, more or less what what we really tell people is to shoot as heavy as you can. And I think this may be a direct quote from Doc or you. Maybe hey, we may have got it from you and not, not even known it. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, basically what we tell people is shoot as heavy as you can with the trajectory that you can live with with as much with as much weight on the front of the arrow as possible uh, uh where you know you aren't compromising uh structural integrity with a, a brittle arrow and uh aren't compromising good arrow flight with a uh, poor dynamic reaction so with uh, with what you shoot uh i mean you, you you're a western bow hunter like you know longer shots aren't aren't out of the question do you find that a quote-unquote heavier arrow just creates a, a this super uh, a lobby uh, trajectory that is just like unmanageable for uh, a typical bow hunter that's going out west to shoot shoot a big game animal? I don't think so. I mean, I'll tell you kind of my system and how I look at it, and everybody can kind of take this with a grain of salt and what they think, and you know, by all means, go out and test what I'm telling you. Uh, prove it's true but inside 30 yards trajectory of your arrow doesn't matter much you know we're talking like an inch or two it's it's nominal at best so there's nothing to even talk about inside 30 yards beyond 30 yards or actually the breaking point really for me and most of the stuff i've tested is more like 35 but so for me beyond 30 yards I just have a hard fast rule that I've adopted over the years that I am going to range that animal before I shoot. You know, way ahead uh, of my time. This is why I tell everybody. It's um, (laughs) because I don't care how good you are and how flat your arrow shoots. You can, it's pretty easy to screw that up. Yeah. Um, And I don't want to, I just, I want to put my shot where I want my shot and, do the best I can with plan A. So beyond that, it, trajectory doesn't matter to me. I don't care as long as the arrow can get out there. You know, I'm not going to shoot probably a 2,000 grain arrow that I can't get past 40 yards because sometimes right. I've got to shoot that far, <laughs> uh, especially on a follow-up shot or something. So um, for me, trajectory is a non-issue. Um, and the benefits, the upsides are so much, you know, I suppose there could be a time that comes where, you know, maybe I range something wrong and it picks up a branch or something like that happens and it's five yards farther. Well, at least I got a plan B arrow. So if I don't hit where I wanted, I'm going to do some damage. 
That's right. Whereas mm-hmm. if I just throw that out the window and try a flatter shooting one that I have a little bit more confidence that might hit where I want it to, but it also might not do what I want it to. So um, one of the reasons I wrote that is just because a lot of people don't don't really understand that full concept or all the, the pluses and minuses. And there's something about putting it on paper in front of you that kind of solidifies it in your mind, basically. Yeah. You know, any decision. So laying that out there, mainly I did that to just, okay, here's the pros, here's the cons. Decide for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I was saying earlier, I'm not going to argue with somebody if they've got results and it's working good for them. Great. But this is what works for me and it's what I've found and what I've tested to be true. So hopefully that helps some folks. Yeah. I've always, I've been basically been saying this for, I guess a couple of years since I've tried to be more involved with the heavy arrow community is the shots basically for me separate into two areas. Well, I mean, well now I'm shooting a recurve, so now it's just one area, but when I was shooting a compound, it was two areas shots 40 40 yards and in and shots outside of 40 yards and 40 yards and in i am confident that i can range that animal to within two to three yards either way and with my setup if i if i'm off of my range by two to three yards it's a couple inches and it's not going to be a deal breaker on on a lethal shot and if it's over 40 yards i'm going to get on my rangefinder and i'm going to range them and then I'm going to dial my single pin to exactly where they're at, and I'm going to shoot them. And and that's, I mean, that solved the trajectory dilemma with me, especially when I started, when I found out, like, oh, I can still shoot 600, 650 grains well over 80 yards if I need to. Uh, and, you know, depending, and everyone's a little bit different. You know, I was, you know, 2870 on a, on a compound bow, and, you know, it's not attainable for... Uh, you know, young ladies, if they're trying to shoot uh, uh, super long distance with a really heavy, uh, heavy arrow, it can be more difficult. But yeah, I kind of, I fell into the same boat. I was just like, well, trajectory just isn't a real big deal to me. So I just started building arrows to the the specs that I wanted them as far as durability and structural integrity went. And then like wherever the weight landed is just like where it landed. Like it wasn't a real big deal to me and the trajectory wasn't a real big deal to me. So yeah, it's funny when you weigh out all the pros and cons, really the only one, you know, if we're just talking arrow weight, the only downside is the trajectory. And when you overcome that, then there's really, what are the cons? Yeah. Well, and that's, it's a mostly a mental con. Yeah. I mean, right. Because depending on what you're wanting to do, like if you're, if you are someone that has a short draw that is shooting lower poundage but you're wanting to go after larger game. There's a give and take, right? It's, okay, do you want to be able to shoot, say, to 50, 60 yards and not have the confidence that it's going to get the job done? Or do you want to maybe limit yourself to 40, 45 and now have a better setup that has more potential, you know, and it's in those cases, it's just that mental decision of what's more important, you know, 
that I have a greater chance of success or that I have a greater chance of taking a shot. Right. Well, yeah, what end result are you after? Exactly. And once you realize that, now, at least for most people that I talk to, the answer becomes a lot more clear when you break it apart like that. It's, you know, opportunity versus success. Mm -hmm. And that's most people will take a higher rate of success over, you know, just having a chance. Yep. Stack the, stack the deck in your, in your favor. There's no, I mean, it's, uh, hunting in and of itself is hard enough. Bow hunting's that much more difficult. And I mean, it's, everything's unpredictable in bow hunting. You you never know what's going to happen. So you have to, you have to be ready. There, there is no, uh, there is no option. Well, I mean, well, I guess people do it all the time, but there is no responsible option to just waltz in there with a, uh, a, a setup that you know is not optimal for for whatever they're they're going after. Um, you so you talk a lot in your book about blood trails and tracking. Uh, and one thing that we hear a lot uh, about single bevels uh, is single bevels don't leave good blood trails. And I am of the mindset that there are uh, a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand things that have to do with blood trails that we will never be able to uh, antiquate or or uh, compute in. Like why sometimes like could have been a perfect shot with a razor sharp head, and there's just not much blood. And then other times it could be a less than perfect shot with a head that was. Uh, butter knife sharp and there's blood just everywhere uh and and i've i've had that experience both ways i've i've had good shots where with sharp heads where there wasn't a ton of blood and i've had shots with heads that like when i picked it up afterwards i'd i wouldn't use it to uh, (laughs) try and cut butter and and there was blood just i mean it looked like something that ray charles could have found uh but uh, you, you talk about blood a lot in your book, so I'll, I'll let you kind of tee off in whatever direction you want to go with that because you have you have a lot of good points in there. Yeah, it's it's a fairly long and in depth conversation when you start talking blood trails, and uh, there's a lot of misconception. I think a lot of it comes from you know nothing against um, the media or anything, but you know different companies trying to advertise to give themselves an edge. You know, talking about blood trails and whatnot, and equating more blades with more blood, which, you know, at a surface level, it makes sense. Um, but you know, I won't go down that rabbit trail yet, but we can later if you want. But <laughs> at any rate, a blood trail, uh, the big factors is, one, where you hit and what you hit. Um, two, how high it is on the body cavity. So yep. um, most often, I will say more often than not, when I shoot an elk um, with a single bevel, two blade, uh, whatever you want to call it, broadhead, uh, getting that animal to bleed out is not a problem. Often they they most often die within seventy five yards, if that, uh, and you know the entire cavity is full of blood, so that's not an issue. But also in that scenario, there's such a fast drop in blood pressure. This is my theory, I'm saying, on that, Mm -hmm. because I can't, Mm -hmm. there's no way anybody can prove it. But um, 
you know, I shoot that elk and he falls over so quick and such a drop in blood pressure that there's not a blood trail, but he never left my sight. Right. So, um, that said the fact that, uh, I think you were talking about maybe a two blade, not being able to leave a blood trail or mm-hmm. a single bevel. Well, that's not the case. Um, you know, there's more than enough blade surface, especially when you get the kind of penetration that right. is offered with a plan B arrow. Yep. You're traveling through so much of that animal that, you know, you're actually cutting more than you would with, say, a four blade that only traveled a quarter of the distance. Yep. So you're, you're getting all kinds of tissue damage. I will say I've, I've killed lots of animals with uh, the two blade broadhead setup and a, a lack of blood's not been an issue um, a lack of blood hitting the ground oh heck yeah with any broadhead that can be an issue right and a lot of that is how high on the body cavity it hits um, one thing if this is so picture an animal with his leg forward and let's just say you get a perfect shot right behind the leg yep. and he moves his leg back and now he's running. Well, he just up. sealed off that hole in the body cavity. Mm-hmm. So yep. you're not going to get anything more than whatever superficial blood came from that flesh wound. But the inside of the cavity is going to be poor because you just tore out his vitals. Yep. Um, you know, so that's, there's so much to blood trails that have you know, not much to do with the broadhead itself right? as much as more of the shot placement and what you actually hit. I mean, you could hit just a half inch over and maybe you didn't get that great big artery. So, okay, now it's going to be a little bit longer process for that animal to bleed out. So the more tissue damage you can do, the higher the likelihood, but you're actually going to do more tissue damage with a heavier high FOC arrow that can take those two long blades and drive them the length of the animal than you are with just say a light arrow that has blades hanging off everywhere and goes in three inches. And those blades hanging off everywhere have to get in under a hundred grains if they want to make it to the whitetail rack. So they're all going to taco over and be dull. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, um, that's, it's, it's kind of like the trajectory thing. Uh, that you're talking about when you really put it all out on paper in front of you, it's amazing how obvious the decision is. But the problem with that is there's just so many factors that a lot of people really don't take time to think about or understand, or it just hasn't been explained to them. So, you know, when you really think about, okay, what do I want a three foot long wound channel with a blade that stayed sharp all the way through, or do I want a, five inch wound channel with blades that were dull for half of that five inches. Right. You know, which is going to kill faster Yeah. and which is going to leave more of a blood trail. Well, maybe the five inch one would because it's a super superficial wound and the animal is going to stay alive for hours and leave a blood trail moving around. But in the other scenario, the animal is going to be dead in a hundred yards tops. And, uh, he had such a drop in blood pressure that, you know, the, there wasn't any blood left to pump out. It's all in the cavity laying in the bottom of his. Uh, right. Well, and that's one yeah. big thing that I think a lot of people don't consider is when you make, you know, like a picture perfect shot, you 
disable the heart or you take out major arteries, the, the pressure loss, like once that pressure starts dropping, you're not going to have that giant spray. Yeah, well, you're it not pump. gonna have. <laughs> you flipped off and, the switch. <laughs> yeah, and so now, how much hits the ground is really dependent on where the entrance and exit holes are. Yep. Whether or not any internal tissue or you know fat or legs or anything else moves and and closes the hole off, and you know it's still hundred percent lethal, but you might not have stuff on the ground. Um, the other part that I guess I want to mention is in my book, like that first, like if you're actually tracking an animal, say it wasn't a perfect shot and, you know, you have great blood up front, like a lot of, you know, a lot of the, hunting shows and stuff, you know, it's always great blood right there. Yep. That's not your blood trail. That is spray from, you know, the initial shock and impact as that, you know, adrenaline spiked, pressure spiked, and you get some spray. Now, you get 25, 50 yards down the trail. Now at least in my opinion, you have the actual blood trail. Right. And I think Doc talked about this in in one of his papers, but it's one of those where a lot of guys don't think about that. They look at, you know, when they say it doesn't have a blood trail, they're looking at that shot site and going, like, there isn't a bucket of blood on the ground. What happened? Instead of going, okay, the animal went this way, you know, go that way, and now start looking for the trail if it didn't drop in sight. Yeah. And I think it's just a big misconception that is in large part due to marketing and what, like, the TV shows show and promote that guys just don't realize that it's different stages. Right, right. There's one... Two things you said there that was interesting. One, you were talking about where the entry and exit is. And then uh, I want to talk about that for a second. But then two, also, you talk about trailing without necessarily, we're not going from blood spot to blood spot. There's way more to following an animal than um, just looking for blood. And, you know, if, if you just go off what you see on TV or maybe read, there may be a, it's easy to have a misconception that, hey, I've got to follow a blood trail to find an animal. No, you need yeah. to trail that animal. You need to use tracks. You need to use yeah. signs. You need to use every means you possibly can to locate that animal, not just blood. Because there's going to be times no I was going to say, especially when you're red-green colorblind <laughs> yeah. like Rob. <laughs> right. And the other I one you're talking about. Right oh, blood. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's rough colorblind. I can't relate, but that's got to be tough. Hey, it's I normally do pretty good. That's like last yeah. year that's I trailed one just on like hoof prints and broken, you know, sticks and just physical evidence for like 75 yards and then I had a buddy coming up behind me. He's like 
man, did you see all the blood? I'm like, <laughs> what blood? Like, I'm I'm just going off of like sign right now. <laughs> He's yeah. like, oh yeah, there was all kinds of blood back there. Right. Like, oh, okay, that's good. Uh, that helps. Yeah. So you got you've got to learn the right way by default. <laughs> <laughs> the other one you were talking about exit wounds, um, Matt. I think you were mentioning earlier that um, you've probably got a lot of a lot of tree stand type hunters, whitetail type hunters uh, on the show here. So I want to speak to that a little bit. And I'm not going to mention or even claim to be the pro in that department. I have killed some deer, um, blacktails from tree stands. But when we're talking about blood trails and when you mention exit wounds, having a plan B arrow is the best way to guarantee you're going to get an exit wound. But mm. not just an exit wound. The nice thing about shooting from a tree stand, shooting down on an animal, is that exit wound is going to be low. Mm-hmm. Yep. So if you're really after blood trails, having a low exit wound is key. And then having a broadhead that's going to be sharp all the way through and then exit low on that animal, you know, your chances of finding that animal go up dramatically because I can pretty much guarantee if you take out the lungs and poke a hole in the bottom of the rib cage, he's going to be spewing if he lives long enough to do it. Yeah. You know, the experience I've had in that is they typically don't go out of your sight before they keel over. And most of the time they don't even know they're shot. Yeah. So yeah, that's always a fun experience. Razor sharp broadhead. They don't, they just stand there and what's, what's going on. That's honestly one of my favorite stories from, uh, I guess customers that are using a plan B type arrow for the first time, they shoot something and like, they're telling me, you know, how it went down. And they're like, I would have sworn up and down that I missed. Mm -hmm. Like I, I watched that arrow disappear and it didn't even move like no kick, no big jump. It didn't start sprinting. And I'm, I'm just at a loss. Like, what just happened? Like, I could have sworn I hit where I wanted. Yep. Mm-hmm. But I, I missed. I had to have. Yeah, and no then flight it takes response. A, and then it takes a couple of steps and gets all tippy, and they see blood coming out, and it drops. Yeah. Like, what just happened? That's how <laughs> I felt with my antelope last year. I yeah. shot it at 20 yards. Yeah, 20 yards. I took a frontal shot because it had no idea where I was. Um, but went in the chest and out between the legs and I would same thing. I would have sworn that I missed like she, it was a doe, but she reacted to the sound of the bow going off and then like, you know, took three quick steps and then just started looking around and I, it wasn't until I saw blood start squirting out of her chest that I realized that I actually did hit her and then her legs gave out shortly after. So it's like, Oh. I didn't miss. I don't suck. Okay, that's good. <laughs> yeah. I'd have been pretty disappointed had I missed because that was a rough hunt. Uh, we can talk off air about which hunt that was, but it wasn't Oregon. <laughs> it was a rough couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, and you can even often get follow-up shots. You know, not that you really need to have them, but I'm of the mind if that thing's still standing, I'm still shooting. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, me too. I, she yeah. ran off. I mean, like I said, she took three steps and then a couple other ones before she went down. But I was, you know, had another arrow in and was at full draw by the time she started to go. But 
yeah, didn't have to send the other one, although I was about to. Yeah. <laughs> I know in your in your book, you know, we're to all this talk about blood, but uh, uh, blood isn't even plan A. It's it's plan B is to kill them by hemorrhage. And I've I I have your book open in case you need any help with if you want to talk about the uh, the scientific terms because I think this is uh, the section where you you partnered up with uh, Ed Schleif and talked about uh, essentially what happens when you collapse lungs. Right. Um, is that is that something you can touch on for for a hot minute? Like I said, if you yeah if you need yeah, if you absolutely. need a phone if you need a phone a friend, I've got a I've, I've <laughs> okay. got I've got a, I've got a open right here for any of the terms no. you may need. No, I rewrote that book enough times to where I pretty well got it dialed. <laughs> well, this is this is one of like like this literally these like three pages, and this is like pretty early in the book. Four pages is six pages. Uh, is like one of the things that I talk about the most and like when I've talked to like nurses or people in the medical field uh uh you know about that that are bow hunters and I'm like well this is the same for like all living creatures right and they're like yeah I'm like well this seems like it would work so uh, uh, all that to say uh you you talk about it because I'm sure you will be much more graceful than I right so Basically, what you're saying is just explain a little bit about how um, how we collapse lungs, or yeah, you want to yeah, get into or, hemorrhage or, or both. Um, or... Uh, yeah, well, we, we talked, you know, we talked a little bit about hemorrhaging with with, with bleeding, but with right. uh, um, your uh, how how basically how uh, putting two holes in an animal and breaking the the plural liquid like hydrostatic lock basically just creates like it makes it to where animals can't can't breathe at all right right so yes that's explain that on air without pictures you see how many pictures are in that section <laughs> yes, there's, 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 a, there's a lot of pictures now like you're said, testing I, me I'm, I'm, uh, here for, I'm here for the phone a friend that's right right so um yeah the we're talking pneumothorax, so yep. those of you in the medical world might understand this a little better. But basically, the way Ed Schleif, he was really good at describing it, um, what he said is we've got the lungs are attached to the inside of the rib cage yep. uh, via the pleural space, it's called. So lungs in and of themselves don't have muscles. Yep. They can't inflate and deflate themselves. So how they accomplish that is with the diaphragm, which runs across the back end of the rib cage, and the intercostals muscles that run between the ribs. So those two groups of muscles, uh, if you want to call them two, they're multiple muscles, but by the diaphragm and the rib cage expanding and contracting, it will expand and contract those uh lungs to draw right. air in and out right now they're attached to the diaphragm and the rib cage by a hydrostatic lock as you said there matt uh, it's what it is, is it's fluid between the lungs themselves and the rib cage and if you guys want to try an experiment at home to kind of see how it works take two pieces of glass and put some water on it and stick them together and then see how hard it is to pull them apart. Yep. 
that's what we're talking about, the hydrostatic lock. And that's how those lungs stay attached to the rib cage and the diaphragm. And if you can disrupt that pleural space or that hydrostatic lock, those lungs, then that's what happens when you hear the term lungs collapse. That's literally what they do. They fall off the side of the rib cage and fall down to the bottom of the chest cavity. And now your chest cavity can go in and out up and down as much as you want and there's no air being drawn in because those lungs have fell down to the bottom of the cavity yep so what we're trying to do with the broadhead and the is get in there and we want to disrupt the pleural space one but then also we want to cut as many arteries as we can going through those lungs so we're e- either going to kill them by sus- suffocation because the lungs collapse or hemorrhage from the blood vessels that we've cut and that's why we want a broadhead that'll stay sharp even after it cuts through the ribs and the bone you know a shoulder if needed whatever and can cut those arteries Uh, that's also the reason that like maybe a broadhead of lesser steel or a really weak replaceable blade broadhead or mechanical or something that goes in and the blades just taco right and they're dull as a pickle as soon as they get in uh, you still have a chance at killing the animal if you can peel those lungs off the side of the rib cage, and you know then they're going to suffocate. They'll still live a little longer than if you were to go through and cut all the the blood vessels and bleed them out at the same time. That's the best when you can do both. Yeah. Um, so that, in a sense, Matt, is how the lungs are collapsed. And keep in mind, you need to penetrate deep enough to collapse both lungs, not right. just mm-hmm. one. Right. Yep. And that was, that was my, what I really wanted to kind of circle around to is Uh there's an animal can, can live, especially a larger mammal can live on one lung. Uh, and you know, it's, you see all the time shots that like all like intents and purposes were probably like decent shot placement, uh, in the animal, like you'll see, you know, the deer, uh, you know, later or you'll see the elk the next year or whatever on a trail camera and sometimes an arrow will still be sticking out of them and it's and there good chance that arrow is sitting in that lung and that lung is probably collapsed and, and is dying but that animal is still living uh on one lung so well, you, ha- you, have, you have to get all the way through i've cleaned whitetail that one lung was just completely shriveled scar tissue yeah <laughs> You know, and I mean, the only, I guess, the only way that I see that happening is if it got hit by, you know, assuming a hunter, but, you know, something caused that lung lung to collapse and it didn't get infected. It didn't go, you know, green and... You know, their will to live is, like, oh, insane. Yeah. yeah. But one thing that I, I do want to touch on is, and I guess a question for you, Jeremy, is, like, when we're talking about uh, lung shots, now, depending on where you hit in the lungs, in, I guess in my mind, there are, uh, I guess, different, I guess, percent like chances of achieving 
collapse like we want. Like if you are in the uh, front lower portion of the chest, that's where the, the majority of the expansion is happening. You know, you have that, that muscle movement expanding, contracting the rib cage, which is going to cause that separation. If you're in like the, the upper top back portion of the lung, you don't have as much movement. Is that like, have you seen, I guess, is that actually applicable? That's an interesting question. It's, it's one of those things that's kind of like, which veins do you hit when you shoot? There's so many chances and so many scenarios. That'd be a hard one to define. There may be a, a medical doctor that could tell you from experience what they've seen and Mm -hmm. what they haven't. And, you know, give you some probability scenarios on that. I, I can't really, one thing, what I can say about that is you're probably actually going to get most of your movement from the diaphragm and the rear part of the lungs is where most of your movement's going to be from. But the other thing about that is most of the blood vessels, the larger blood vessels are all up front. Are all up front. Yeah. yeah. So it's you know, that's what a makes combination of it. Yeah. So that's what makes a frontal shot. So devastating if you've got the arrow to do it because mm-hmm. It's like you can't miss something extremely vital up there. Oh, how, do you yeah. feel, how do you feel about frontal shots? I know it, it seems like the elk world is like split into two camps on it. Right. I'm, I'm all for them if you've got the right arrow. I'm all against them if you don't. Okay. Exactly. That's that. That's that's fair. And I I I, I thought that's where you were going to be. But I mean, because I the guys that I know that shoot uh as uh ranch fairy would say man size arrows uh, uh or, or adult 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 size arrows um yeah. uh that they what did what did he say i want to say he said between him and his hunting group they're like 29 for 29 on frontal shots like every frontal shot they've taken has just been like immediate pile up like it's you now that they'll normally take off like a bat out of hell uh, um, but right. they're, uh, like they're dead very quick. Yeah. And I want to throw some disclaimers in there too, just because the main reason is I'm, I'm concerned about people just flinging arrows without oh, knowing the yeah. whole picture sure. on those frontal shots is uh, for me, a frontal shot, I want them really close because that animal can react to that shot real quick. Yeah. So uh, inside 20 yards is where I'm taking my frontal shots beyond that. I don't, I'm not interested. Um, Usually I can wait for the animal to turn or do something different just because if it's a frontal shot, he's probably looking at me and he's probably alert, right? Yeah. Coming into a call or whatever. And that's, you know, an elk hunter's, that's another topic, rabbit trail. But how often <laughs> do you see elk come in frontal? Well, if you're calling oh, every wow. time, you're yeah. by yourself. do you want to take that Pretty shot or do you want to wait? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, especially Gary Wright, hunting by yourself, which I do a lot of. Yeah. Um, that frontal shot, that's, I'm going to dare say 75% of the time, that's your first shot. Do you hmm. want to take it or do you want to pass up and hope for something else? But to get back to that, the disclaimer is, yeah, be be very aware that it needs to be close because that, that elk, even elk as big as they are, you know, especially deer, those things can whirl in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You know, they see your bow go off, that he may be, it may be a, a Texas heart shot by the time that arrow gets there. Mm-hmm. So, um, you got to be careful with that. And then having the, the plan B arrow, and we're talking about heavy arrows and it's kind of a, it, 
it's yeah weight's good and in certain scenarios it's important but um, to me I feel that's gone too far I'm more interested in the front of center the structural integrity of the arrow uh, the perfect arrow flight at a broadhead that stays sharp going in um, the byproduct of all those things is it's going to end up being heavy by the right. time you get all that equipment on there mm -hmm. but it's not as much the arrow weight the arrow weight only comes into play when you're talking about having to push through bones. And the reason I make that distinction is there's a lot of people that say, well, my 400 grain arrow just penetrated great and did fine. It probably did on that shot. Yeah, that time it you did. You know, yep. you don't need arrow weight if you don't have to bust through bone. Right. But you do need arrow weight to get enough forward to center so it doesn't deflect to get a broadhead on there that's going to be stout enough and an insert on there that's going to be stout enough. And... So weight's actually way down the list on important factors for me, but sure. I'm still going to have that in my camp in case I hit a bone or shoulder, right? But yeah. um, I just want to make that distinction because I have seen the scenario where I was talking, I won't mention names, but a, a very famous person in the bow hunting world that had tried a, a 650 grain arrow at one point, but what he was doing is taking his, an aluminum arrow throwing another carbon arrow on the inside using yep. the same old aluminum insert and some stupid hundred grain, you know, $30 a pack broadhead. And, uh, he didn't have good results with that. Yeah. Go well, figure. He says, yeah, those heavy arrows don't work. Mm. Well, okay. <laughs> you're, you're right. <laughs> that heavy arrow didn't work. <laughs> I actually have a sneaking suspicion of who this is yeah. that we can, yeah. uh, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, what you're getting at though is, I mean, the 12 factors. I mean, you, it you, is. you need to have yep, flight. It is. You need to be durable. You need, you know, good front of center. And you need things to stay sharp. Right. And now, and I guess how I look at it is you know, that is all in my, in my book a given. I don't care what weight you're aiming for. Yep. Those factors are paramount. Regardless, I yep. mean, because you can still make a, a high teen percentage arrow that is around 500 grains. Yep. You know, that's not all that challenging. So it's not like you have to go crazy heavy to hit, you know, the top four factors. Yep. Now, weight, in, in my mind, is a lot of your insurance. The more weight you have, the more insurance you have for different scenarios. I mean, and that's, you know, bone in particular, but even uh, the, you know, required uh, level of penetration. You know, it's very different if you're taking a broadside shot, how much penetration is needed for a desired full pass-through compared to a frontal or even a hard quartering away like and a lot of guys don't always think about that where like a hard quartering away is a go-to shot for a lot of guys but what they don't consider is that you just doubled the amount of penetration that you need and now you're more than likely going to catch offside shoulder or leg so now you have more penetration you need 
and you're potentially going to hit bone at you know the lowest <clears throat> force level that that arrow has. Yeah. Well, and I would suspect that a lot of so I mean a quartering away shot is kind of like the a quote unquote textbook shot for yeah. white whitetail country, right? And and for I mean whitetail, all things considered, are fairly you know thin skinned They're not yep uh, super tough animals, but. Uh, when that same guy goes out west and he decides he's going to hunt an elk and takes that quartering quartering away shot, well, now you are running into a lot of really thick ribs. Well, and, that, and it's like, not because I mean, because it, it goes from this to that, and and that's uh, I guess people can't see. Okay, you, t- <laughs> you take your take your finger four put four fingers up in front of you, and that's your broadside shot. And now turn it at a forty-five and look at your fingers uh, with with them still out, and that's like it's very difficult to get through. I mean, you're going to catch two, three, or depending more ribs. On on, yeah, depending yeah. on the angle on on a quartering away shot. And I mean, these aren't uh, these aren't whitetail ribs. These are these are the ribs of a five hundred plus pound animal that uh, uh, you're uh, you know if you're if you're not bringing the bacon on your uh, arrow setup, it's it may not go as planned. Well, as I, right. I guess I want to clarify, though, because, like, I'm not by any means saying that that quartering away shot is bad. Because oh, even no, if you don't have not. a full no. pass through, you're very likely to get into the, the yeah. you know, major chunk of vitals that, that yep. you're trying for, right? Yeah, absolutely. But, like, yeah. going back to, like, the blood trail discussion that we had and, and you know, looking at the, the evaluating the total end result that's where some of that other stuff can definitely come into play because you can have a 100% lethal shot, but you didn't get exit because you caught the offside shoulder. And so now that broadhead may be poked out or is, you know, still inside of the skin. And you're wondering why you don't have a good trail. You know, it's dead. It you know, if you didn't see it drop, it's it's there. Right. But you might have made things a little more challenging for yourself because you didn't have that exit. So it's Yeah, and it's gonna be running real hard after it feels something come up on the outside shoulder <laughs> from the inside. Yeah. As opposed yeah. to just passing on through. Yep. Cause now it not only did it get stung for a second, now it got stung and it's still stinging. Yeah. And you have, as I opposed mean, to just passing through, bone definitely has a different level of shock. That, right. I mean, I think that that plays a big factor in uh, the overall reaction of an animal, and it's a it's a big factor in like what broadhead you're using, where like we talked about animals like barely reacting to shots. That's with very efficient heads you know there, there's very little felt impact there's a, a low shock value whereas if you go to the other extreme and you've got this you know multi-blade wide cut type head there's a lot of initial shock yep like it's no wonder that the animal reacts to it and you know that that it all ties together. It's, I mean, it's all a system. Yeah. What's your setup, Jeremy? What are you shooting? Currently, uh, are you talking about arrows or? 
Yeah, arrows. Assume, yeah. I mean, you can, you can talk about your bow, too, if you want. Yeah. Um, so currently, I use uh, an Ashby Broadhead a steel insert on a VAP 250 Elite shaft and three Blazer veins. And that comes out to right at, at my length, it comes out to uh, about probably right at 700, 698, 700 mm-hmm. grains. So, yeah, I'm not shooting for any arrow weight. Actually, like I said before, it sounds... It sounds counterintuitive, but arrow weight's not very high on my list. Sure. What yeah. I'm after is that front of center, and that puts right. me, you know, with a compound setup, I'm knocking on 30%, just under. Dadgum. Yep. And, you know, that that system has worked awesome. Uh, and you, you, you can get a two, I mean, you shoot, uh, yeah, well, you're a longer draw length, aren't you? You're almost 30 inches, something like that? Yeah, 29 and a half. Okay, so. and you can get you can get a two fifty to spine with that much weight on the front. I can, would, yeah. yeah. Wow, yeah. I don't know about you know. Bows are so different. Uh, yeah, all the different true. compounds. Um, I for the last uh, several years, I don't know since at any rate for the last since Bowtech came out with that split yoke system, I switched to that just so that I could tune my uh, cams, yep. you know, with different lean and whatnot, and that. You know, that system has always worked really well for me for tuning these high FOC arrows. Now, I see a lot of other bow manufacturers are really trying, and I'm not pushing bows in any way, shape, or form here, but nah, we're, a we're lot kinda, of different... We're kind of bow agnostic here. We're whatever, <laughs> yeah. whatever people want to shoot. We it's do the arrow like, that we does do, the we, killing. Yeah, but... we do We do like yokes, though, because a double yoke system makes it way easier to tune than trying to shim or change top hats or stuff like that. Yeah, so, I mean, shooting... Having a perfect flying arrow is what I'm after. My bow is an arrow delivery system. That's, you know, that's my bow. Yep. So, however, I can get that thing to fly well. So... Um, I will say though, I've got buddies that shoot Matthews, Hoyt, Elite, all the different you know bow manufacturers, and I haven't seen where it's been a problem getting any of those to tune. Sure. So it can be done. Oh yeah. How you get there? Prime. Set them up yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I had a prime care. last year, and I was ready to throw it off a cliff. <laughs> the only bow that I could not get to tune. And then you sold me your Darton, which I, I thoroughly, which I thoroughly enjoy. That thing is a <laughs> so are you? Slinger. Yeah, it's it's fast for uh, being being a little seventy pounder. Um, so are you a fan of uh, high mechanical advantage heads? Are you asking me? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, I mean, he's shooting an Ashby, so. Well, yep. I know. Well, I, I, did, I didn't <laughs> yeah. know if that was, if that was like if that was a common theme in years past. Like if that's just what you. Uh, uh, what do you, do you just? I I think I remember seeing a video of yours. And I think you were shooting either a samurai or a monarch. Okay. Uh, um, I I think. Um, mm-hmm. it, well, it, it was your plan. I think it was your plan B arrow video on YouTube where you just you kind of talked about why you shoot those. Oh uh, right, yeah. And and I I, th- I think it was a, a more Ashby style head. It, it may have been Ashby's. I can't remember at this mm-hmm. point, but. Uh, no, I've shot I've shot a few different heads. I've shot the monarchs, um, the samurais, and the um, oh, what am I thinking? It's escaping me at the moment. They're two hundred grain single Maasai. Maasai, yeah, yeah. I was, uh, you know, like I mentioned, I was working with Garrett uh, and Ed uh, before he passed from Alaska Bow Hunting Supply. So I've, mm-hmm. you know, I've used all their heads, and uh, you know, that's all good stuff. Um, I just, 
I just really like that solid chunk of steel mm-hmm. of the Ashby, and the non-vented is just quiet. It's like a sniper coming in on those elk. It's it works awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, there's there's other good heads out there too. One system that I've got so many of this current setup that I have that it's I haven't had to buy arrows for eons. So <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gone over and done it, but there's. Um, I've recently found last year Valkyrie Archery. This oh, yeah. <laughs> shop. I don't know if you guys are familiar with yeah. them. They make some. I bought some for my longbow. They make some awesome <laughs> insert systems. Oh yeah, dude. And Val- then Valkyrie, oh, there you go for, for micros. Valkyrie's probably where it's at. Yeah, they, yeah. They're, they're they're bomb proof. I've had Val. Well, uh, Rob, are you, are you the only one that hasn't had Valkyries here? I have not used them. I have. Yeah. Uh, I have been hands on with them, and I guess like I've said before. I'm personally, I'm not the biggest fan of micros because of, I guess, some durability issues that I've seen in, across multiple brands. Sure. But um, that's if I was going to run a micro, that Valkyrie system is the only system I would I would use. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Just because it it is, uh, I guess, handling the only downside that I have with micros. It, it's shoring up sure. the front end of that shaft. It's yeah. allowing for that transfer to occur down the shaft in a, in a more efficient manner and not create, you know, a, a hot spot, a, a failure spot at yeah. the, the back end of the components. Yeah. Right. It's a, that... it's, it's a tank on the front. That's what, that's what Garrett shoots. Garrett's a, Garrett's a Valkyrie guy. How many, how many, be... uh, how many? How many? You, how many? How many you have now? You, oh. you made a large. You made a large purchase. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with Jake Thompson, but we had him on the podcast. Jake Downs, before too, or sorry, Jake Downs. Uh, Jake Thompson's different. Um, but anyways, he had 21 heads that I bought from him for a very good price. Very so nice. pretty, yeah. pretty well set on Valkyries <laughs> for the foreseeable future. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I like tough heads. Um, mm-hmm. They're That's 300 grain. That's what I shoot out of my longbow. And like I said, if I didn't have so many of the setups, I'd probably my ideal one. And I just had a buddy of mine was asking me what to buy, and he bought a bunch of these, those Valkyrie inserts. And I like the two-blade broadhead. I'm pretty set on that because it's yep. served me so well over the years. And then gluing a tough head on that. And I know it sounds like a traditional setup. It is out of a compound. <laughs> but I don't care. I'm yep. after results. Yep. But you were mentioning something, Rob, about the micro diameter and the durability. So I thought that's a good rabbit hole just for a second. Yeah. Yes. Um, Let's do it. I'm totally with you on that. And in fact, when I published my book, I wrote something in there like, you know, micro diameters aren't quite there yet. And uh, it, it, I hope it's really that they a will component be. thing. Right. And, it is totally. And I mean, in my mind, what it comes down to is. Uh, leverage in front of the carbon and the amount of support inside and past the end of the carbon uh, internally. Um, And the issue with a lot of the early systems was how far in, you know, how much additional material you had in front of the shaft. Mm -hmm. And now you put this broadhead on the front and you've got, you know, like if you're running like an Ashby or a tough head, or one of these more, you know, three inch long efficient heads, you've got potentially four inches in front of your carbon. 
So now yeah, it's a lot of leverage. It, it's a lot, a of, lot leverage. of leverage. Mm-hmm. And if you if it's not shored up, you're gonna you know see there, there's gonna be a greater potential for failure if you have any kind of uh, angular impacts where you're creating that side load. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. And like ethics has a good system for it. I've used theirs and it's definitely one of the better ones. Um, but the Valkyrie system with that center pin, I, I just think is very solid. Um, and it, it eliminates some of the concerns with, a, with a lot of the systems. So here's a, here's something that I kind of wanted to rabbit hole into and it has to do with FOC. So, I won't spend a ton of time on it, but those those people are, who are nerds out there about this stuff like me might appreciate it. But Jeremy, uh, our, our average podcast is over an hour and a half long. You can spend as much right. time on it as you want. <laughs> so um, FOC, right? How much weight do you have up front? So mm-hmm. take that um, just for, I'll just use my setup, for example. So I've got that 315 grain broadhead. I've got the 95 grain steel insert behind it. What insert so are you running on that? Sorry, sorry to sidetrack. What insert yeah, are you running no, on that? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, the VAP steel insert. The stainless insert. steel shock. Oh, is it, well, right. is it the shock or is it their new one? The, the pictures that I've seen of your setup was the shock. Okay, okay. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. Well, I, so I, the, I know Victory came out with a new, with a newer system, uh, this uh year. probably six, six months ago yeah. or so. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Good. And, and I was really leery about it at first because there's not a lot hanging in that carbon. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, just for the record, I really, I like Valkyrie system way better, but I can't screw my Ashby into it. And like I said, I've got so many of them and they've worked, so I'm sticking yep. with it for now. But back to the FOC thing. So a lot of that leverage that you're talking about from that long broadhead, plus you got the insert hanging out, you know, four inches of leverage on that, just yep. whatever is hanging in the carbon, you know, that doesn't make a lot of physics sense. But when we take the FOC and we figure what's the total weight of this arrow. Mm-hmm. 700 grains, right? So we've got 410 grains up on the front end, which leaves all the rest of the arrows 300 grains. And you take, and so when you get an impact and you've got the back end of that arrow whipping around, that's why, you know, the more weight you can have up front and the less in the back, the yeah. less of that whip and drag you're going to get and the less of that leverage is going to be an issue. Yep. When you're pushing 30%, um, and uh, Dr. Ashby pushed on this or touched on this in some of his later studies, uh, you don't have the arrow durability issues because all of your weight is up front and right. that carbon isn't getting so much whip and leverage on it. One thing I will say is I haven't had an arrow failure with that setup. Whereas I think if I was down below 20% FOC or even 25, I don't think I would use that. Yeah. So, yeah because sure. I've and seen those I think shock, the potential for failure. I've seen those shock inserts snap out the side of the VAPs. I don't know how many times, but yeah, that, you know, they're in that 15 to 20% FOC yeah. range. Which well, and, and I would makes a lot more sense. I completely actually. agree. Um, somewhere in that low 20% range, you know, is where you really see those issues uh, start changing. Um, right. You know, so I won't run less than that 300 grain broadhead yeah. in the VAPS. Yeah. I mean, that's now, I had. I have in other arrows, but yeah. 
Go ahead. Um, because that's probably three, four years ago. I was playing with the Vaps because at the time, it was one of the only systems that really allowed me to get really good FOC without like just going completely crazy with like custom stuff. Um, and that's I had uh, um, what was it? that was a one of the VAP camos, which was like the heavy walled version, and that 95 grain stainless, and then a 315 grain head. And I was right around like 29, 29 and a half percent. And that's I sent one of those on a i was at a 3d course and they had a bonus uh iron buck target which is a steel (laughs) cutout with Mm -hmm. with a 10 ring hole in it at like 45 50 yards and of course i had just set these arrows up i was essentially sighting in as i went through the course just going okay i've shot around this weight before like okay yep little off there okay okay perfect okay make a mark and we get to the end of the course and I'm like, okay, I'm pretty sure I need to put my pin here. <laughs> and of course I, I was like two inches off, but that arrow literally hit and rebounded back like 10 feet. And I picked it up, flexed it. And I'm like, Oh, okay, cool. Like no damage. The tip was, you know, smashed flat, but I mean, I've had way lesser impacts on like low 20% micro shafts that just completely failed. And that's, you know, that FOC is in my mind what made the difference on that. Um, And that's, I, I hear a lot of guys and Matt and Garrett, you guys probably hear this too, that, you know, people will say that oh when when you start dealing with high front of center you you really need to you know have a, a beefed up shaft and it's like no like the 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 greater the front of center the shorter that front lever arm the less mass you have in that long tail and the less force that's being applied at that at that pivot point the only maybe <clears throat> to uh to play devil's advocate kind of because i don't i don't disagree but maybe what those people are talking about and i'm pretty sure i've heard doc talk about actually i'm 99 sure i heard him talk about it on uh i can't remember if it was trag geeks or somebody else but uh uh is sp- splitting the back end of the like mm-hmm. the the knock the knock to the back end of the carbon on that arrow like you just get into like such light gpi shafts when you you start going into those micros that sometimes they're a little you'll whip the knock rate out of it yeah yeah or or yeah it'll like it'll put so much force on the knock because it's staying on the string for so long that uh, or well i mean it's probably it's probably a byproduct of like a lot of front of center heavier arrow a lot of force on the back end of that shaft but uh yeah i i think that's at least in, in my experience that's the only like quote unquote downside to like when you're pushing 30 percent is you need to shoot you can't shoot crap carbon you have to shoot quality carbon that uh that's going to be able to hold up when when that bow presses on it for a longer amount of time yeah i mean like 
as far as brittle goes, like any of your like ultralight shafts, like yeah, don't uh, don't shoot like rip ultralight carnivore, carnivore yeah. ultralight, or you know, there's all these like ultralight shafts, and yeah, you can get some phenomenal front of center out of them, but it's like a sixteenth or less thick sidewall, right? Like you've got this like paper thin shaft. It's brittle. That's the only way that it can achieve the spine. Yeah. Is because it has to be stiff enough with no material. Yeah. So, I mean, on any standard shaft, it it's not a concern in my book. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I've definitely, on hard impacts, I've snapped knocks off, like, no car- carbon failure, but you you definitely can get some whip action on a hard sure. impact where it'll it'll snap and that knock can break clean off flush with the carbon you're almost talking about the a concept that i really didn't even touch on much in the book but it has to do with foc is more about how light the back of your shaft is versus how it has more to do with that that and the whip yeah than how so how much mass weight is in the back of your shaft you know, forget the front, mm-hmm. how much mass weight do you have in the back? Right. And the more you have in the back, the more prone you're going to be to busting out the back end of that shaft. Yep. And I've had way more shaft damage and all the testing, the durability testing on broadheads that I was doing, <clears throat> way more shaft damage on lesser FOC arrows. And uh, when I say that, I say more like the heavier the shaft and the heavier the back end of that shaft, the more damage I would see. Now, hmm. That's sort of true because sometimes if you're shooting like a super heavy walled carbon, it's not going to damage as mm-hmm. easy. But um, just say like, say, you know, when I was shooting some 350 and 400 grain arrows um, where there's not much FOC there, that was the highest back end shaft damage of any of them. Yeah. Because, you know, by comparison, you've got a almost the same weight front and back so things are really whipping around right yeah yeah whereas if you got all that weight up front and the same amount back there it's not whipping around as much on impact yeah well that's i can't uh i can't remember what the exact demonstration was but uh it was well it was it was the pope and young convention where dr ashby had it all filmed and i i can't the exact experience experiment i can't remember but it was he was talking about recovery time and he put like a one, I think it was one paper clip mm-hmm. on the back on the back of the shaft, and like, and then he did some test to show the comparison recovery time and whatever that. It, I'm guessing but he was showing like, the change in front of center. Uh, How? well, I well, I I think so, but like he didn't. They were both, I believe, if I remember correctly, they were both higher front of center shafts. But then he just like added weight to the back end, which yes would would change your front of center. But he but he just added a little bit of weight to the knock end and it like complete like it, everything went out of whack, yeah. which well, which really sucks for me because like I like lighted knocks uh, yeah. and and like and when you look at like oh I'm gonna shoot a four fletch vein and I'm gonna shoot a lighted knock and like oh I'm gonna shoot a wrap and then before like before you know it you've got darn near fifty grains on the back of your arrow and it's like well crap this isn't what I was trying to do. <laughs> well, and that's one thing that I, I would say is. Um, I guess in the durability testing that I've that I have done, um, like you mentioned, Jeremy, the more uh, weight that was at the back, 
you definitely see more issues. Um, but one thing that I did notice was even if you have a really high front of center, um, and sometimes I think it's because of how high the front, or cent front of center is, if you uh, start adding too much weight at the very tail, like if you add like one of the like ballistic collars on the back and you have a lighted, lighted knock on the back and you know, you're centralizing mass at that very end of the carbon, you're putting a little wrecking ball on the end of a whip. Like you've got yep. this giant rear lever arm and like you just put this mass way out on the end of it that now is going to be taking advantage of that lever arm. Yeah, you're negating a lot of the benefits that you get from FOC yeah. by doing that. Even if your FOC is still good. You know, right. that's it's just something I guess to pay attention to. Yeah, it's just physics. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's just physics. That's all. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much I mean what all this boils down to is oh yeah, it's yep. just just yeah. physics. Just physics. <laughs> it's n nothing all that yep. uh, groundbreaking, but yeah. yeah, we didn't invent it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you you talked briefly about uh, some of the uh, durability testing that you did um, in your book. You talk about uh, penetration testing, and uh, I don't know how much time you spend on social media, but all the rage nowadays is to shoot a fifty-five gallon drum and or some plywood that may or may not have been left outside for the last like 12 years uh cinder and, blocks uh, yeah yeah <laughs> well well i mean well shooting a cinder block for like a destructive testing slash like durability i guess i'm not like completely against it's just excessive but, yeah but uh um apparently steel drums are now the uh the benchmark for penetration potential uh, and you, you, you talk about in your book about, uh, uh, some testing that you, you set up and did in your results and kind of why backyard testing is really, really difficult to do. Can you touch on that? Yeah. I've done all the same stuff just to let you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and we learn. And I we think learn. everybody yeah. starts there, yeah. you know, so nothing knocking them or anything, but yeah, it's, you know, with the exception of just seeing, okay, how strong is this component and will it come, you know, is it stronger than this is component a stronger than component B if you're trying to do a side by side comparison. Okay, great. Um, does that, how much does that apply to bow hunting? Almost nothing. Um, right. And penetration testing is even further off the charts. So whatever you're doing in your yard probably ha will not indicate how well it will penetrate an animal. Um, and I can say that with some confidence because an animal, yeah, I'll just kind of cut to the chase rather than going through all the details, but an animal, as your broadhead is entering that animal, you're cutting something that's elastic. So it's basically going to be spreading apart as you're cutting it, yep. as well as something that's lubricated by blood and bodily fluids. Um, so that's the the friction is totally different than say a steel drum or a piece of wood which is dry and solid and does is not elastic does not pull away right 
Um, so what, and to boil it down, basically what it takes to penetrate an animal and what it takes to penetrate whatever you're shooting are two very different things. And the difference is friction. The friction of your steel drum, your cinder block, your plywood, all that is much greater than the friction of penetrating live lubricated flesh pre-rigor mortis. I mean, even if you were to set up an animal and it was dead for an hour, it starts getting stiff and then yep. that elasticity goes away. That's different than actually shooting an animal yep. that is alive and on the hoof. Yeah. For, for listeners that may not know, rigor, rigor mortis uh, is something that Dr. Ashby talks about a lot and I want you to touch on that here in a minute, but uh, it's like after you kill an animal and it starts to get all stiff, kind of like what Jeremy mentioned, that's rigor mortis setting in and when dr ashby was doing his testing it was uh it was all done i want to say within like 30 minutes 30 to 45 minutes of an animal being harvested because rigor mortis would start setting in afterwards and all of the testing at that point in time would be null and void so sorry just wanted to toss that in there for people who may not know what that is yeah so friction is is basically what we're talking about uh, and why that backyard testing really doesn't work if you're looking to indicate um, indicate penetration potential on an animal. Yeah. Uh, momentum is going to be a much better indicator because friction isn't as much of a factor. If friction was more of a factor, then momentum maybe wouldn't be the highest um, indicator. Maybe it would be aerospeed. I did an interesting test where... I was shooting into layers of plywood, quarter-inch plywood, that I actually built a jig and a box for and routed out every inch uh, a layer of quarter-inch, or maybe it was, it was press board, that's what it was. And uh, I forget, I probably had like 24 of these things lined up, and I shot arrows into them, so I wanted to see how many boards would this arrow penetrate. And uh, I called Dr. Ashby before I did it, and he said, yeah, it's not going to work, but go ahead and do it. And I said, I know it's not, but I got to prove a point. And so I did it. And what was interesting is actually the lighter the arrow, the further it penetrated. And my, I had, um, and I've got pictures and the exact specs there in the book. I don't remember off the top of my head, but I had like, you know, a Cape Buffalo style arrow with a broad Ashby broadhead on it. And, uh, then I had like a 400 grain arrow with just this dinky little, uh, I want to say it was an interlock or something, but something with not much surface area, right? Right, right. And what I found <laughs> is the amount of surface area indicated how much it penetrated, not yep. weight, not anything else. Yep. And that's because friction is exactly. what was stopping that arrow. Yep. You don't have that level of friction in an animal. Now you need more, um, you know, why is it escaping me the term uh the f anyway you need more momentum and force the continual push of that heavy arrow to get through something right uh, when friction isn't a factor yeah yep so so and you know what we've talked about the momentum versus kinetic energy kind of thing on here before and we'll we'll beat that horse until it's uh 20 foot under uh really but <clears throat> i think uh, and I think you mentioned it in your book, I'm pretty sure, that the best, uh, to me, the best penetration potential is kind of a combination of three things, is your momentum value, your mechanical advantage, and uh, something that I think, coming from a, uh, a rifle background and a precision rifle background, is sectional density, uh, which is essentially kind of a 
combination of momentum and mechanical advantage. Well, uh, well, I guess not mechanical advantage, but it's uh, uh, sectional density. Uh, yeah, it's a component uh, of mechanic. I mean, not the yeah, mechanical uh, advantage that most guys look at, but right, right. If yeah, you I, I see what you're getting at. Yeah, get super but, technical. Mechanical advantage does include, you know, what that sectional density is, and you know the the front right. surface area that's at yeah. play. Yeah, um, you know the taper, the ferrule, the taper, the blades, thickness of the blades, all of that, you know, truly does tie into what the mechanical advantage is. Yeah, so sectional density. Um, that's so in bullets. Basically, you're taking the surface area on a frontal aspect mm-hmm. and how much force divided by that surface area. Hard to it's hard something to, to consider. Hard it's to, hard to hard to calculate. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, if you, I mean, right. if you, look you at can't it in, calculate it on an arrow, right, to be exact. Right. It's great. You can on a, you know, a bullet that's a perfectly round cylinder. Right. It's right. easy to calculate. Yeah. Um, but basically what you're looking at is a surface area. If you were to look at that arrow from the front tip, how much, you know, looking back towards the vein. So and don't try this at home type of thing, but basically look at the broadhead from the tip, <laughs> yep. holding it out in front of you. You know, how much surface area are you looking at? And I took some pictures in the book just so people could kind of see what we're talking about on sectional density. Yeah. Um, so it's something to consider. It's not, I don't think it makes the top 12 things on penetration potential. The only time sure. it really makes a big deal is when we got to cut through a big bone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where, you know, like on my box test, when my penetration test, that's where sectional density is going to shine because... The arrows that'll penetrate the deepest will be the practice tips, right? Because there's not, yep. there's no blades hanging off. Yep. There's nothing stopping that. Yeah, it's the lowest it's profile. Have, right. It's not going to have much penetration or much uh, lethality to it. But um, where that's going to really come in is if you got to cut through a, a leg bone or whatever. Yeah. You know, or if you have some you know, giant trophy size test box in your backyard that you got to kill. (laughs) (laughs) It's 55 gallon drums, you know, like that. (laughs) Just completely full of wood and gelatin and everything else that people are shooting at. Yeah. Right. Um, I definitely like on this topic, the, the arrow penetration factor that you kind of detailed in the book. I remember when I first got this, that, like just caught me like with, with I guess my background, like I, I read that and I went, why did I never think about this? <laughs> and, yeah. Right. Well, cause it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it's so simple, but like you gloss over a lot of that simple stuff. Um, and it's funny because I ended up, taking that and like with the percentage gains that that doc has for the different factors i was sitting here playing around with different setups and going okay so like if we have this momentum and we have this mechanical advantage and then you have you know the 10 percent gain for uh the feral to shaft ratio and then you have you know this gain for front of center and i was yeah, I was going crazy with it. But it, yeah. it's cool when you start breaking things down like that. It's all theoretical. But you're looking at the, well, at yes the potential. Yes and no. 
it's still physics. I yeah, mean, it yeah. is real. Yeah, and I guess it's when not, I say theoretical, it's not, yeah, precise, it's not but yeah. an exact, like, if you have this number, it's going to do this every time, right? But you're looking right. at the potential. And yeah, you're measuring potential because you can't factor in every little detail exactly. of the shot, what rib it hits, what angle it hits, all that. You know, and so understanding that if you have a lower mechanical advantage, you need more force to have the same level of potential. You know, and how it it's all a give and take. It's if you're not going to do this, well you might want to consider that. And I think it's just a very simple way of uh i guess your your method was a very simple way of uh putting some numbers in front of people right so to bring it home for the guy listening so let's just say you want to you're deciding whether you want to use this broadhead and this arrow shaft this year or this brand this other brand broadhead and arrow shaft and you know what setup you want to use use the arrow penetration factor as a way to compare the two and decide which is going to be better on the penetration front. Yep. And, and it's simple math that you can do and say, Oh yeah. Okay. This system is better, you know, or you know what? I don't care if this system is better. It's not much different. And I like the structural integrity of this broadhead better. So I'm going this way, mm-hmm. but it's just one more thing. If you're writing it down in front of you and you want to put together the best setup for what you're doing to figure in. And that's, I guess, yeah. I don't think we actually mentioned it for people that haven't read the book. One, you should. Uh, two, what the penetration factor is, is essentially a work calculation. You have your momentum, which is your force, and your uh, your measured mechanical advantage, your broadhead. And so you're, okay, with this force and this mechanical advantage, how much work can be accomplished? Right. Exactly. It's simple. It's not, uh, it's not really that complex once you think about it, mm-hmm. but it's something to think about and it's a great way to compare different setups. It is. It really is. So a lot of this book that you wrote had, um, there was a lot of help from Dr. Ashby and, uh, there's a, a lot of Dr. Ashby in this book is, I mean, mm-hmm. when you, when you get to start with uh, almost 30 years worth of uh, studies and references, it's uh, typically a good resource to use. So I don't blame you. Uh, um, so talk, talk about your, uh, your relationship with, with doc and, and uh, just how he was an influence with, with putting this book together. Yeah, he was instrumental. It would definitely not be what it is without uh, his help and influence and all his studies. Um, He did a lot of the foundational work that I used in this book. And uh, for those that don't know, I mean, you probably know if you're listening to this who he is, but he basically spent the better part of his life doing studies on what makes, you know, arrows more lethal. And broad, you know, arrows, broadheads, forward to center. He developed all the penetration factors, all that. So he is a doctor. He does understand how research and study is done. So he's a very good man for the job uh, in that he is probably the world's most successful hunter. And he has his, um, you know, his education behind him. So uh, a great resource. Uh, I first met 
Dr. Ashby, um, Ed Schlieff, uh, the founder of Alaska Bow Hunting Supply, introduced him to me when I was talking to him, interviewing him for a magazine article uh, many years back. And uh, so we talked, and that's when he first introduced me to the you know, pneumothorax and how that all works. Uh, right. So Ed was the next person that I really got in and talked to about all that. Um, and I kind of hit it off right off the bat because there really wasn't anybody out there talking about his stuff. And he was really getting slammed by the media because it was, you know, not always favorable yeah. toward their cause. So, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, he welcomed me with open arms and I, I spent a lot of time at his, basically on his front porch taking notes and um, trying to figure out how to put this book together. The book actually started out and was just going to be a series of magazine articles, but there was just way too much to cover and it kept the project kept getting bigger and bigger. So um, I got to know Ed over the years doing that. Uh, he helped me with a lot of the content editing on the book. And um, anytime I had a question with one of his studies, uh, he was always there to help out with that. So, um, and you know, through the process, he turned out to be a really good friend, a uh, very dear friend. Um, I'll never forget all the stuff he's done for me. So, you know, yeah. Ed's the real deal, but he doesn't sugarcoat anything. <clears throat> he does, he tells it like it is. And that's probably one of the reasons we get along. Um, <laughs> but my goal was to basically take um, his studies and what he knew, at least for the arrow penetration and the plan B arrow part, what he knew about that and break it down. So your average bow hunter could use it and apply it mm -hmm. because yeah. not everybody, you're talking a little bit about your attitude, uh, Matt, when you first started bow hunting, not everybody's got that initiative to really get in and study this stuff. Right. You know, and frankly, you know, that's probably the majority of the bow hunting world. They oh, just yeah. want to go out I, and hunt and kill stuff, right? Yeah, yeah it's that's... it's definitely the exception to the rule for people that are interested in this kind of stuff. Right. So what I wanted to do is package this all up for somebody that is maybe not that type of technical person that can read it and apply it, put it in real life perspective. Because I've actually lived this stuff and learned the hard way on all this. And... uh not to the extent that Ed has by any means, but package it in a way that your average bow hunter who just wants to go out and hunt can digest it and use it and put it into practice. I'm not trying to push any agenda at all here in any way. I'm trying to help people. And um, so that's, that's where Ed came in, basically on the content side of things. Um, and then somebody else I'll mention who really helped me in the delivery side of things was Dwight Shue. Um, Dwight is a very dear friend of mine. Uh, he just passed this last February 5th. Um, in fact, I was on a video chat right here like we were doing when I found out about it. But he helped me out so much in regards to the writing side. And, you know, he, he edited the book right. uh, for content. And... Um, and then I had, you know, my aunt, which is actually an awesome literary editor, helped me with that part as well. But so Ed gave me a lot of the foundation of, for the lethality side of the book, 
um, as well as helped in the tracking and whatnot. And Dwight Shue helped a lot in the delivery side. Um, I won't say Dwight taught me how to write, but basically Dwight taught me how to write when it comes to, <laughs> so people would want to read it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of it wasn't always nice, <laughs> but he was, he, he read that entire book and went through the whole thing, wrote notes out for every chapter. This is how you need to deliver this topic. This is what you need to do. You need to ax this. You need to do this. And uh, he really helped make that what it is. So this book wasn't just me. It it was a lot of different people um, that put their heart and soul into this thing. It was a four or five year project, I want to say, at yeah. least. Well, yeah, for people who don't, I mean, this thing's pushing, it's over 300 pages. Yeah, it's, it's almost 350 pages. So, like, it's, that's a pretty hefty book for... Uh, bow hunting education i feel like uh that's yeah. uh, oh, but it's, it, but it's yeah. for the average guy that 350 pages is a lot more digestible oh 100% like not everyone is gonna you know have the desire or the drive to actually you know dig through the reports yeah and break it down and take it from that that technical aspect and apply it right yeah that's where i think that the book just really excels is it's putting it into you know the the normal bow hunter perspective and making it easy to understand and apply and i mean that's where like well I mean, I've borrowed my book out to a handful of different people. That's if uh, anyone that knows me online, I was complaining about not being able to find my book. (laughs) (laughs) So that's I actually I picked up another copy. And uh, yeah, it turns out that, uh, yeah, it was just hiding. That's uh, my wife had put (laughs) it somewhere else. (laughs) Now I do have a copy that uh, if someone wants to, to borrow it, well... I've got a spare. Yeah. Well, it's, it's it, like you said, Rob, and, and kind of what you were talking about, Jeremy, like it's, it's very digestible. And I think that's probably part of the reason I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say I'm not a, not a big reader because I read a lot of news articles and stuff like that. I just, I normally don't sit down and read books a ton unless it's like nonfiction stuff that I'm like really interested in. And I'm pretty sure the first time I read this, I burned through it in like three days. Mm-hmm. Like, and I mean, that's uh, just because when I started like reading on stuff, I was just like, holy crap, like this is, this is, uh, first off, it's really good, but it's just stuff that's just like so applicable and things I'm like, I didn't even think about looking at things like this. Uh, uh, but, but it is, I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's easy reading. It's even, even for how technical you get in in some of the parts where you have to uh it's not uh it's not so technical that uh uh you know you have to uh have a four-year degree in uh engineering to figure it out it's uh uh but there's uh it's it's a it's an easy reading book and it's an enjoyable book for for me uh so i i can't uh i can't sing your praises high enough and uh and for the people who helped you with it 
Yeah, I appreciate it. And like I said, it is for the average bow hunter out there. I wanted a resource to where you didn't need a four-year degree to understand it just because it doesn't help anybody if they don't understand what you're saying. Yep. And uh, that's where Dwight really helped me uh, bring it home on that. Yeah. Uh, but has a lot of the advice I got when I was writing the book is this needs to be like three or four books. It's too much. <laughs> Um, but you really can't break up all the topics. They're all so interrelated that if yep. I were to do that, then somebody would get a hold of one book and not the other, and it wouldn't work. So from a business standpoint, it's a huge loser. It costs a ton of money to pr print that book <laughs> <laughs> because of all the pictures and how many pages it is. Yeah. But it's <clears throat> meant to be something that people can reference for years to come mm -hmm. whenever there's a topic that comes to mind and you want to remember, okay, what was that all about? You know, you're not going to remember 350 pages worth of content unless you've read it 20 times. But you can go back and reference that, and that's why there's, you know, the table of contents yeah. up there and all the Good different Good index, lots, lots of visual aids. It's yeah. So it's so don't let the fact if you're not a reader don't let that scare you off. There's yeah a lot of pictures. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's a it's a picture book. Like it really like every yeah. <laughs> every it seems almost on every page you've got some type of <clears throat> goodness. Excuse me, you've got some type of uh, um, uh, visual aid there to to help people understand. So I mean, yeah, realistically, it's it's probably closer to I would guess. Uh, about 200 about probably 200 250 pages if you took out all the pictures but uh but i mean but these pictures are are good like i mean it, it's stuff that really really relates to the content that you're talking about well good thank you i hope that helps out a lot of folks because <laughs> it was uh i don't know that i would do that project over again <laughs> well I, I think we're all glad that you you did yeah thanks yeah. appreciate it garrett you've been uh you've been uh quiet cat in here you, a little bit. you have any have anything uh, i don't think so not really <laughs> you just need to go hunting with jeremy this fall that's what you need to do you're right down the road kind I, of i'm kind of close i live in tigard so i'm not too far oh, from okay. you but right work in uh boardman hermiston area a lot so oh cool yep well rob do you have anything else no, I mean, I think we hit pretty much all the uh, main topics that we were wanting to cover and uh, broke the book down pretty good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, frankly, I, I mean, I, we did touch on a lot in the book, but there's also a lot that we didn't touch on, like, a lot like this i mean there's well there's, there's a, a reason it's so many pages so it's kind of hard to for these things to break down i had a yeah a radio guy call me up the other day and hey i want to do a 10 minute interview on your book I'm like <laughs> okay what do you want me to say <laughs> like i have, I have a book that, that right it <laughs> um if there was a way i could have shortened that up to still get the message across i would have but yeah there's a lot to bow hunting success and making sure that you kill an animal every time there's no way around it yeah but if that's really your goal then um let's dive in and do it yeah exactly. absolutely so you you run bow hunting success and then can't lose bow hunting is the book that you wrote does bow hunting success really kind of just revolve around everything that's in the book or are you are you doing additional things outside of that um yes and no i mean i've i'll do speaking engagements from time to time and 
you know, help spread the word, do stuff like this. Bow hunting success I created so that it could be a platform for a lot more. Um, what I've found is the bow hunting industry itself, if you want to do it the way that I want to do it, doesn't pay real well. So <laughs> yes. I have my other business. I run, I own an auto shop and run that. Um, so the, the whole business side of bow hunting success is there and it's something that we could push. And I created it so that it could be a platform for a lot of what you guys are doing already. Um, but in and of itself, as of right now, it just pretty much revolves around the book. And uh, I wanted to create a website that basically I could take the content in the book and anything that needs updated in real time or if, say, hey, there's some news here that I want to put out or there's a topic that maybe in the book needs some more refining. I'm getting a lot of questions. So let's use the website to address that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's about it. Well, uh, thanks for coming on, man. I, yeah, I know uh, this, uh, Garrett, correct me if I'm wrong. <clears throat> uh, my goodness. <clears throat> I don't know what has been going on with my voice the last couple of days. I've been talking, I've been in too many meetings. Um, <laughs> Garrett, correct people out. Oh, man, that's been a dumpster fire at work. Um, Garrett, correct me if I'm wrong. When we put together, when I put together my initial list of 10 people, I believe that Jeremy was on there, correct? So the first, when before this podcast was a thing, and myself and the other co-hosts were putting together like a list of people that we were like, oh, we would like to have these people on eventually. I'm 99% sure Jeremy was one of them. So I am uh I know I'm that happy. he's one that we talked about before this was even like close to a reality. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. It's uh, definitely awesome to be able to sit down and chat with you. Yeah. And uh, greatly appreciate you sharing your knowledge and, you know, just help. Well, thank you guys for what you're doing. This is awesome. You know, it all it all works together, and together we can help out a lot of folks. So, yeah, that's all right back at you guys. Sorry, I'm not a major podcast type of guy or internet <laughs> chat room type <laughs> of person because i work 12 hours a day usually so hey that's all um, right. but you know anytime you guys can put together something like this and i can just jump i feel like i'm cheating because you guys did all the work and i just got to sit down here and talk so no no that's <laughs> the nice part. this is that's, that's all that's really all we yeah. do we didn't, yeah, we didn't just write a book or anything. We just yeah, were like, hey, we can buy microphones <laughs> for a hundred bucks and yeah. we have the yeah. internet. So yeah, we'll just try to go. talk. To and boom, a podcast started. <laughs> um, uh, so you said uh, um, that if people mention the show, uh, if people want to buy your book, which uh, if if you're still listening and you're this far in, if if you aren't on Jeremy's website ordering this book right now, you are wrong. See, I'm uh, on the website uh, about to I, 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 I genuinely, <laughs> like, when I say this, I, like, I genuinely 100% mean this, and I'm not just saying this because Jeremy's on on the show. Is this a show? I don't know what this is. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I've, I'm pretty sure I've said it multiple times on Rockslide and... Uh, the Kafaru uh, pages and stuff like I genuinely believe that this book is the best piece of hunting equipment that you can buy for under 50 bucks uh, it's uh, what so it's 35 bucks for your book something like that right yeah mm-hmm. okay like this is you will get so much more than 35 dollars worth out of your investment with this so if you're still listening 
the love of God, please, please buy this book because it's going to, not only is it going to benefit you, it, it creates the trickle down effect with knowledge. And, and then when you're like Rob and you think you loan out your book and then you actually didn't, then, uh, then you buy more books and, and, but that, that's just how, when you buy books, you just start loaning them out and you buy, I've got a uh, one book here that I read in, uh, college called, uh, rich dad, poor dad. And I, I, I honestly think I own like six copies of that book because <laughs> I, I kept handing it out and then like people would forget about it and I'd get it back later and I'd buy it another one for somebody else. So anyway, point, point being buy the book and, and you were saying that you might be able to do something for, for our listeners if they mention, uh, mention they heard it on the podcast. Yeah, let me know, and uh, I will put the word out to my secretary. Hey, if they mention the podcast, let me know, and I'd like to personalize that for them. Cool. And uh, I'm going to send something else along with it uh, that I'm not going to disclose. But oh, I'd like to find out. Surprise! All right, hey, I'm all about that. Cool. All right. Well, Jeremy, thanks again. Uh, hang out uh, for a minute after I uh, press stop, but uh, really appreciate you coming on, man. Like, it's uh, this is great. I hope we get to do it again uh uh hope you go shoot a man i'm so bad at wrapping things up i am so (laughs) bad at wrapping things up do you only hunt oregon or do you hunt other states as well no i hunt other states as well okay so so basically um i've got one oregon hunt that i always do uh with my buddy shay and then um whatever time i got left in the season i'll go hunt uh idaho or montana cool cool well go go shoot a bunch of bulls and then come back on and talk about it that's the (laughs) that's the stipulation sounds like a plan (laughs) perfect all right thanks everyone for tuning in listening and until next time stay lethal and don't forget the olive oil